You are wrong about guitars podcast. You're, you're just wrong. You're wrong, man. You're, you're wrong. You're about just guitars. wrong about guitars, dude. You're just you're, wrong about guitars. You know nothing. Wrong. Wrong. Welcome to your Wrong About Guitars podcast. I'm your host, Eric Olvin, back for another week of digging into some of the gods of guitar, rulers of the riffs, soldiers of shred, architects of the axe. And this week is... Dwayne Allman. All right. Back for another week. Make sure you check out the private Facebook group. Cool content going in there. A lot more posts, a lot more discussions going on. Definitely check that out. Um, check out all everything else. We got um, you know the YouTube channel. If you're watching it there, check out the podcast. If you're on the podcast, check out the YouTube channel. Um, you got uh, Sunland Guitars. Cool new stuff coming out of there. New guitars, new designs, design work. Uh, Dyer Davis still got time to go vote for him as well. Uh, check out his social media um, to vote for him. The new artist award for Blues Blast magazine. He's been nominated, so it'd be awesome to go support him as well. Um, and I think that's all I got going on this week other than uh, right here with Dwayne Allman. But first, let me tell you about our new sponsor, Sax Underwear. As a luthier, you spend a lot of time taking care of nuts. Guitar nuts, that is. After working on thousands of nuts, I realized something. Who's taking care of my nuts? That's when I found Saks Underwear. With Saks Underwear, you get a perfect fit with unparalleled comfort. They're great for skinny jeans, leather pants, and hitting every jump and stage slide. Just like your favorite luthier, Saks knows the importance of a perfect fit with expert craftsmanship and virtuoso-like precision. My personal favorite as a Floridian who is always dealing with hot and humid conditions is the Saks trademark drop temp cooling mesh and hydro liner technology that delivers exceptional breathability and quick dry functionality. It's even chlorine and saltwater fade resistant for when I want to take a dip in the pool or stop by the beach. Trust in the Saks Comfort Guarantee. If you're not 100% satisfied, they will refund or exchange your order. Click on the link in the description to learn more about how Saks will take care of your nuts and order your first pair today. Your nuts won't be disappointed. Saks Underwear, Guitar Tech approved. So let's get right on into it. His name is Howard Dwayne Allman, born uh, November 20th, 1946, passed away October 29th, 1971 an American rock and blues guitarist and the founder and original leader of the Allman Brothers Band, for which he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995. He was born in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, began playing the guitar at age 14, formed the Allman Brothers Band with his brother Greg in Jacksonville, Florida in uh, 1969. The group achieved its greatest success in the early 1970s. Allman is best remembered um, Allman is best remembered for his brief but influential tenure in the band and in particular for his expressive slide guitar playing and inventive improvisational skills. A sought-after session musician both before and during his tenure with the band, Dwayne Allman, performed with such established stars uh, as King Curtis, or Curtis, Aretha Franklin, Herbie Mann, Wilson Pickett, and Boz Skaggs. He also contributed greatly to the 1970 album Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs 
by Derek and the Dominoes, which we'll get into in a little bit. So a little Clapton here, which is um, how I got into Dwayne next, is um, following some of the kind of uh, Clapton um, friends and influences. So uh, he died in a motorcycle crash in, on October 29th, 1971 at the age of 24. In 2003, he was ranked number two in Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time, second only to Jimi Hendrix, but in 2011, he was ranked number nine. His guitar tome, uh, achieved with a Gibson Les Paul and two 50-watt bass Marshall amps, was named one of the greatest of all time in guitar player. All right, so let's get into his early years. Dwayne Allman was born um, November 20th, 1946 in Nashville, Tennessee. He was the elder son of Willis Allman, who at the time of his death was a second lieutenant of act, um, on active duty in the United States Army, having served as an Army non-commissioned officer during World War II. And his mother was Geraldine Allman. Uh, his brother Greg was born December 8, 1947. On December 26, 1949, when the family was living near Norf Norfolk, Virginia, where he was stationed, Willis Allman was murdered. So that she could retrain as an accountant, Geraldine, or otherwise known as Mama A. Allman, sent Duane and Greg to Castle Heights Military Academy in Lebanon, Tennessee, which they both disliked intensely. In 1957, the family moved to Daytona Beach, Florida, right here, where the boys attended Seabreeze High School, which is still here today. The boys returned to Nashville to spend summers with their grandmother and the, uh, there, Greg learned guitar basics from a neighbor. In 1960, he had saved enough money to buy his first guitar, a Japanese-made Tiesco Silvertone, while Dwayne acquired a Harley 165 motorbike. Despite Dwayne being left-handed, he played the guitar right-handed. Dwayne began to take an interest in the guitar, and the boys would sometimes fight over it, until Dwayne wrecked the motorbike and traded it for a Silvertone of his own. His mother eventually bought Dwayne a Gibson Les Paul Jr. It was also in Nashville that the boys became musically inspired by a rhythm and blues concert where they saw blues guitarist B.B. King perform. Dwayne told Greg, we got to get into this. Dwayne learned to play very quickly and soon became uh, the better guitarist of the two. All right, let, we're getting into the career right here. So from 1961 to 1968, we have the Almond Joys and Hourglass. The brothers started playing publicly in 1961, joining or forming a number of local groups. Around this time, Dwayne left school to focus on his guitar playing. His early band, The Escorts, opened for the Beach Boys in 1965, but disbanded, some of its members eventually forming the Almond Joys. After Greg graduated from Seabreeze High School in 1965, the Almond Joys went on the road, performing throughout the Southeast and eventually were based in Nashville. The Almond Joys became Hourglass and moved to Los Angeles in early 1967. There, Hourglass recorded two albums for Liberty Records, but the band was unsatisfied. Liberty tried to market them as a pop band, ignoring the band's desire to play more blues-oriented material. Hourglass broke up in early 1968. Dwayne and Greg went back to Florida, where they played on demo sessions with the 31st of February, a folk uh, rock outfit whose drummer was Butch Trucks, who is the uncle of Derek Trucks. Greg turned to California to fulfill Hourglass obligations, while Dwayne jammed around Florida for months but did not get another band going. Dwayne began to learn to play slide guitar on his birthday in 1968. He was recovering from an injury to his left elbow, suffered in a fall from a horse. Greg uh, brought him a birthday present, the debut album by Taj Mahal, and a bottle of Chorus 
coracidin pills. He left them on the front porch and rang the bell as Dwayne was angry with him about the injury. About two hours after I left, my phone rang, Greg recalled. Baby brother, baby brother, get over here now. Dwayne had poured the pills out of the Corsidin bottle, washed off the label, and was using it as a slide to play along with the album track Statesboro Blues. On the recording, the slide guitar is played by Jesse Ed Davis. Uh, Dwayne had never played slide before, Greg later said, but he just picked it up and started burning. He was a natural. The song became a part of the Allman Brothers band's repertoire, and Dwayne's slide guitar became crucial to their sound. Because of the, his use of the early 1970s era Corisidin bottle, a medicine bottle, which is no longer manufactured, replica Corisidin bottles are now popular with slide guitar players who like its glassy feel and sound. All right, so now uh, 1966 to 69 is uh, labeled Session Musician. So Allman's first major recording session occurred in early 1966 at Nashville's RCA Studio B, two years before his famed tenure at Music Muscle Shoals Fame Studios. Producer Tony Moon uh, was recording the Vogue's first album after his successful Five O'Clock World had reached the top five and had been recorded in the same studio. He hired Allman to play on several sides as he wanted a, a more rock sound. At the time, the Allman Joys were the house band at the Briar Patch in Nashville. Allman's playing on the two hourglass albums and an hourglass session in early 1968 at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, caught the ear of Rick Hall, owner of Fame. In November 1968, Hall bought Allman's contract for $10,000. Allman, tired of the studio limitation, was able to play on his first album as a session's ace with Wilson Pickett. Allman's uh, work on that album, Hey Jude 1968, got him hired as a full-time session musician at, musician at Muscle Shoals and brought him to the attention of other musicians, notably Eric Clapton, who later said, I remember hearing Wilson Pickett's Hey Jude and just being astounded by the lead break at the end. I had, I had to know who that was immediately, right now. Allman's performance on Hey Jude impressed Atlantic Records producer and executive Jerry Wexler when Hall played it over the phone to him. Wexler immediately bought Allman's recording contract from Hall and wanted to use him on sessions with Atlantic R&B artists. While at Muscle Shoals, Allman played on recordings by numerous artists including Clarence Carter, King Curtis, Aretha Franklin, Laura Nero, Wilson Pickett, Otis Rush, Percy Sledge, Johnny Jenkins, Boz Gags, Delaney and Bonnie, Doris Duke, and jazz flautist Herbie Mann. For his first sessions with Franklin, Allman traveled to New York where in January 1969 he went as an audience member to the Fillmore East to see Johnny Winter and told Muscle Shoals guitarist Johnny Johnson that in a year he'd be on that stage. That December, the Allman Brothers band indeed played the Fillmore. Ironically, the Fillmore East performance is recorded for the Allman Brothers album at Fillmore East in March 1971, often considered the high watermark for the band, were in the same bill as Johnny Winter. 1968 was the formation of the Allman Brothers band. When asked how the band came together, Dwayne stated, very slowly, I was in Muscle Shoals and I went down to Jacksonville and was jamming with Barry and Dickie. Uh, Jaimo came with me from Muscle Shoals. He origi he's originally from Macon. Greg was in California and Butch was in Jacksonville where we all got together and jammed for a couple months, putting together songs and stuff. We just needed a singer and Greg was the guy. Two weeks after Greg got back from California, we went up to New York and recorded there. We played live gigs before our first album was released in November. While visiting St. Louis, Allman met Donna Roastman, who bore his second child, uh, 
Galadriel. The couple's relationship soon ended. He had an earlier relationship with Patty Chanley, which resulted in the birth of a daughter who was born deaf. Uh, 1969 to 71, success with Layla and at Fillmore East. The Allman Brothers Band went on to become one of the most influential rock groups of the 1970s. George Kimbrell, writing in Rolling Stone at, uh, in 1971, described the group as the best damn rock and roll band this country has produced in the past five years. That's high praise. After months of nonstop rehearsing and gigging without Greg, including free shows in Central City Park and Macon and Piedmont Park in Atlanta, all they needed was a singer, organist, and Dwayne knew who he wanted. When Greg got back from California, the group settled on the name and the band was ready to record. Their debut album, The Allman Brothers Band, was recorded in New York in September 1969 and released a few months later. In the midst of intense touring, work began in Macon and Miami and a little bit in New York on the band's second album, Idlewind South. Produced mostly by Tom Dowd, Idlewind South was released in August 1970 and broke new ground for them by getting into the Billboard charts. After a concert in Miami in August, watched by Eric Clapton and other members of Derek and the Dominoes, the two bands went back to Criteria Studios in Miami where the Dominoes were recording Layla and other assorted love songs. Members of both jammed, after which Allman and Clapton laid up all, stayed up all night trading and showing one another favorite licks, discovering they had a deep and instinctive rapport. Allman participated in the recording of most of the album's tracks, contributing some of his best-known work. He never left the Allman Brothers Band, though, despite being offered a permanent position with Clapton. Allman never toured with Derek and the Dominoes, but he did make at least two appearances with them on December 1st, 1970 at the Curtis Hickson Hall in Tampa. And on the following day in Onondaga County War Memorial in Syracuse, New York. It is unclear whether he also appeared with them on November 20th, 1970 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, when guitarist Delaney Bramlett performed with the band. In an interview, Allman told listeners how to tell who played what. Eric played the Fender parts and Dwayne played the Gibson parts, which uh, I guess I'll have to go through and listen to that a little closer, but he gets into a little more. He continued by nonchalantly noting that the Fender had a sparklier sound where the Gibson produced more of a full tilt screech. All right, so we're going to have to dig into that. Clapton wrote later in his uh, autobiography that he and Allman were inseparable during the, these sessions in Florida. He talked about Almond as the musical brother I'd never had but wished I did. The Allman brothers went on to record at Fillmore East in March 1971. Meanwhile, Allman continued contributing session work to the other artists' albums whenever he could. According to the book Sky Dog, the Dwayne Allman story, he would uh, spontaneously drop in at recording sessions and contribute to whatever was being taped that day. He received cash payments but no recording credits, making it virtually impossible to compile a complete discography of his works. Allman was well known for his melodic, extended, and attention-holding guitar solos. During this period, two of his stated influences were Miles Davis and John Coltrane. He said that he had listened intensely to Davis's Kind of Blue for two years. As Allman's distinctive electric bottleneck sound began to mature, it evolved into the musical voice of what would become known as Southern Rock, being picked up by other side guitarists, including his bandmate Dickie Betts after his death, Derek Trucks, Gary Rossington of Leonard Skinner, and Joe Walsh. Dwayne also taught a young Don Felder to play slide, so it definitely influenced the Eagles. 
All right, so a little bit more about his death. He was killed at a motorcycle crash shortly after the re release and initial success at Fillmore East on October 29, 1971. While the band was on a break from touring and recording, Allman was riding his Harley-Davidson Sportster motorcycle at High Speed and Hillcrest Avenue in the western part of Macon. As he approached Bartlett Street, a flatbed uh, boom truck stopped suddenly in the intersection, forcing him to swerve sharply. He struck either the back of the truck or the ball or on the crane and was thrown from the motorcycle, which landed on top of him and skidded another 90 feet, with him pinned underneath it, crushing his internal organs. He was alive when he was taken to a hospital, but despite immediate medical treatment, he died several hours later from massive internal injuries. His funeral service was held on Monday, November 1st, 1971 at Snow's Memorial Chapel in Macon, Georgia. In the chapel, packed with family and friends, many of the musicians who had been part of Allman's life were in attendance to mourn his death. Record producer Jerry Wexler gave the eulogy. Wexler praised Allman's musical achievements, his uncompromising dedication to Southern gospel, country, and blues music, and the place he attained alongside the great black musicians and blues singers from the South. The band, joined by others, played several tunes, including with a group rendition of the Southern spiritual, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, a band favorite. All right, so uh, give a let's get into the guitars, right, while we're all here. So... Uh, during the Almond Joys and Hourglass, he played a Fender Telecaster modified with a Strat neck. Uh, we'll get into a little more details, so let me just run through this quick. His early session work, he liked to use a 54 Fender Strat, uh, like in Muscle Shoals Sound Studio sessions. And then um, Almond Brothers Band, Layla, later session work, a 61 Fender Strat. Um, from 58 to 62, a Gibson ES-345 semi-hollow body uh, used on the first album. A 1957 Gibson Les Paul Standard Gold Top. A 1959 Gibson Les Paul Standard Cherry Sunburst. A 1958 Gibson Les Paul Standard Tobacco Burst. A 1961 Gibson SG used for slide. And then he also used liked to use a Gibson L00 acoustic guitar. So let's get into some of these in a little more detail. So first one is this 1957 Gibson Les Paul gold top. He used this from 69 to 71. Arguably the most well-known Dwayne Allman guitar, not only in terms of sporting the Les Paul model, but also as a champion of the gold top staple of Gibson. This guitar was a showstopper when Dwayne would appear with it on stage. And the tale of how he got his hands on this particular one is worthy of legendary status. Not precisely in the best of ways, though. Dwayne got it through a friend of a friend, Tommy Crash Compton, and never gave it back after estranging himself and eventually having Greg trading his Wurlitzer piano for it. In the book, A Never-Ending Groove uh, gave a more detailed version of the story. So, Dwayne had borrowed a 59 Gold Top Les Paul. Note, the Gold Top model was produced only until 1958 from Tommy Compton, who still lives in Decatur, and he didn't want to give it back to Tommy. And Tommy wanted it back. Eventually, it worked around to Greg trading the uh, Wurlitzer for the guitar. The guitar was worth more than the piano, but Tommy had a use for it and was trying to keep Dwayne from getting busted because Tommy's dad was ready to go after Dwayne to get the guitar back. So the piano was sent back to Decatur, and Dwayne kept the guitar. Of course, that guitar would be worth a fortune now, certainly more than the piano's worth, I would say so. So it's important to note that the borrowed gold top Les Paul wasn't the only one Dwayne wielded in his lifetime and time with the Allman Brothers Band. Nevertheless, there were both notable pieces of the catalog until the day of his death. Both of these guitars shared most almost identical specs, 
both were missing the toggle switch ring and featured PAF cover uh, pickups for their for the humbuckers. All right, the next one is a 58 or 59 Les Paul Standard, which was nicknamed Hotlanta. Uh, reportedly, this was Dwayne's last acquired guitar. It was also his most often photographed one towards the last year of his life. He got it in 1971 from Kurt Linhoff, a guitar merchant he met through his friendship with Billy Gibbon, Gibbons of ZZ Top. Only days before Dwayne bought this guitar from Linhoff, the tune pegs and headstock had been replaced and upgraded since the previous uh, unknown owner had broken these. In case you're wondering why the guitar was often referred to as Hotlanta, it's because Dwayne used this Les Paul to perform the song since it had all the right features for it. Allman wasn't keen on naming his guitars as far as popular conception is concerned. The interesting thing about this guitar is that it's completely reinvented towards an edgier sound in comparison to the standard Les Paul of the time. Nevertheless, the fact that it belonged to Dwayne made it an item of interest uh, that would change hands and continue to be rearmed with new specs and pickup orders for a long time. Following Dwayne's death, this guitar was also given to his brother Greg, who would trade it to a road manager, Twiggs Linden, in exchange for a 39 Ford Opera Coupe. Twiggs, however, had an honorable gesture with Dwayne's widow as he refretted the guitar and had Allman's name inlaid on it before presenting it to his wife on his gravesite. A few years later, the guitar was given Dwayne's daughter, Gladriel, who remains the sole owner to this day. All right, the next one is a 59 Gibson Les Paul Standard. 1970 to 71 cherry burst according to the legend Dwayne Allman was well into Les Pauls by 1970 and it uh, was and it was all he played aside from his acoustic dove and aluminum covered guitars so when he saw and fell in love with the standard cherry burst Les Paul he decided to trade one of his gold tops for it under a few conditions additionally to his original Les Paul Additional to his original Les Paul, Dwayne added to the bit $200 in cash and his Marshall amp head. He also asked for Rick Stein um, to at least keep it keep the original PAF pickup set up in the guitar. This guitar saw Dwayne Allman become a legend and rise to prominent stardom a year before his accidental death. It has a fair number of stories, and its lore can be considered as vast as mysterious. Not only the aesthetics of the Les Paul would become one of the most sought-after finishes, but the top cherry burst would now enter the foundation of Southern blues rock as one of the main instruments of the subgenre. But more than its appealing color for the time, the PAF pickup cover was removed, making it all more provocative and iconic at the time. It is important to note, however, that the cherry burst back in the 50s and 60s had lighter red accentuations. It would be more of a fade than uh, the modern and now classical bright cherry color we know. A uh, fun little fact about this guitar is that it was last taken out of its exhibition place in 2014 when the Allman Brothers Band reunited briefly for their farewell show at the Beacon Theater. All right, so this one, this next one's kind of cool. It's a 1968 Fender Rosewood Tele. It's a prototype. Um, by all means, another legendary item in his catalog. This rosewood finished tele uh, was used and seen on only one occasion, which was the Schaefer Music Festival in New York City, 1970. Dwayne borrowed this guitar from Delaney Bramlett, who had uh, bought it from George Harrison back in 1969, right, right after the Abbey Road sessions and shooting the Let It Be movie. The footage of Dwayne and his band at the festival is of poor quality. Nevertheless, it is extremely rare and considered a gem. 
Uh, maybe I'll post this one in the Facebook group there. Featuring the standard Tele setup um, with two single coil pickups, there were only two reasons for its unique stat status. One was its pure rosewood finish, neck, fingerboard, and headstock, all rosewood. Two, it was owned by George Harrison, who by 1970 was already a living legend. The rosewood Tele remained on Bram in Bramlett's hands up until 2005. He decided to put it up for auction. And as a result, it was purchased by Harrison's widow for a reported amount of $470,000. And we got um, a 1960s Gibson Les Paul, the Dwayne Allman 1950s Fender Tele, which is kind of cool, a little custom painting there. Um, 59 Gibson Les Paul Jr., which is kind of cool. It's an interesting kind of, um, you know, flat top. Um, uh, P90 kind of setup. That uh, 1960s Gibson ES330, which is pretty cool. Tobacco Burst. It's one of his earlier guitars. And I mean, there's a lot more to get into. A lot, a lot of like, there's a lot of guitars similar to Jimmy Page, right? He's got a lot of session work, so he used a lot of different guitars, like to kind of use different tones and whatnot. There's a lot of lot more funny stories, I think, <laughs> along Dwayne Allman. Uh, and how he acquired these instruments similarly to that um, you know that 57 uh, gold top how he uh, borrowed it and never gave it back right so um, there's a lot of cool funny stuff to get into with um, his guitars there but I thought it was re really interesting you know the he's just in the background of so much music that you don't even realize it and there's no way to even come you know be able to tell what he's all on to create an actual discography of it we just know that there's a lot of that time in the 60s where he's probably got you know his influence on a lot of tracks uh, if you look at where things were recorded um, he's probably on them so you know i really wanted to get into it too knowing that he had uh, something to do with clapton and that clapton looked up to him and um, also being here in Daytona Beach, right? The Allman Brothers band was a, is a big influence around here in Central Florida. It, so I, I definitely wanted to dig into uh, Dwayne Allman. Since he was so high up on the 100 greatest guitarists of all time list, uh, I wanted to learn more and learn about his influences. So here we are. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening in for another week. I'll see you again next week. Later.